Our reading today is going to be Genesis 4, 1 through 16. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? And if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Well, good morning again. How are y'all? Good, good. As I previously said, my name is Matt, and it's my privilege to be with you this morning. If you hadn't noticed, we are missing a good amount of our millennials, and the reason they are gone um, is because uh, Kendra, our children's director, is getting married this weekend. Um, so we're excited for her, and Pastor Ben and Andrew are out there at that. But for those of us that are here, I'm blessed to be here, and I'm excited to get into Scripture with you. I hope you are excited as well. If you have a Bible, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 11. So we're going to be starting out to verse 4. If you have a pew Bible, it's going to be in page 1007. Um, and if you don't have your own Bible, as always, that is our gift to you. So please take a, a pew Bible. We want everyone to have a copy of God's Word. And regardless of where you are in your walk with Jesus, I just want to invite you to open up to Hebrews chapter 11 with us, just so you can see that what we're talking about today, what we're looking at today, is not our opinions. It isn't just uh, our thoughts or our perspectives, that what we're saying is grounded in God's Word. We all want to be grounded in that. Last week, we started a new sermon series. Prior to that, we had been going through the book of Hebrews and looking at the idea that Jesus is better. So better than the angels, better than Moses, better than the sacrifices, better than the priests of the Old Testament, that Jesus is better than all that we know and that he is worthy of our worship. 
Now we're going to be taking a bit of a hiatus or going on a little bit of a side road, and we're switching up, and we started with a sermon series called Portraits of Faith. And as we get into the sermon series, what we're going to be doing is focusing down on chapter 11 for a little while. The scriptures talk about imitating the lives of those who seek to faithfully follow Christ. And in the spirit of that, that's where this sermon series sprang out from. And so we're going to do a little bit of a character study as we go forward with this sermon series. But the goal isn't that we would just learn about the lives of these people. The goal is that we would look at the characteristics of their life of faith and be motivated to emulate and imitate those in our very lives, that we would be encouraged as God's people, that despite the fact that the people we're going to be reading about, they had sin, they struggled, they were very imperfect if you look back at their stories. God used them well, and we want to imitate the faith that they had in trusting in God for what he would do in them. So last week, Andrew started off this sermon series with uh, verses 1 through 3 of chapters 11, and the, the focus of that was the definition of faith. And unfortunately, when we use the word faith in our day and age, it just doesn't mean the same thing for everybody else. It gets confusing. For some of us, faith might be tied to religion, or it might be an unreligious term that has something to do with some vague general philosophy of existence. For others, faith might be viewed as something without evidence. So you take it on a blind faith, and what people often mean is you don't have any evidence for what you believe. We don't understand something, and therefore, we just take it on faith. Still, for other people, faith is something that people hold on to in the midst of suffering. My faith is something that I cling to when I am struggling. But friends, I hope you felt encouraged last week by what Andrew shared with us From God's word, we see that faith, according to the scriptures, is not based on a lack of evidence, but it is something that is sure. We are convicted that despite the fact that we might not see something, it is something that we have conviction is true. I guess a simple example of that is as I look out at all of you, I I take it on faith that you guys all have brains in your head, even though I don't see them. It would be, it'd be a little odd if I tried to argue that there's no evidence that you had brains. So, for the, so I hope for most of you, you have those with you. So I have faith in that. But to say simply biblical faith, if we're going to give a short definition to sum up what Andrew talked about last week from chapter 11, biblical faith is faith that is built upon what we believe is true because of evidence, not based upon a frivolous lack of understanding. If you look at the text in front of you, I want to encourage you to look at chapter 11, as I said, page uh, 1007. As you look at that page in front of you, from a literary context, this whole chapter is set up in a very specific way, where chapter 11 is going to give us a definition of faith, the beginning of it, verses 1 through 3. And then for the rest of the chapter, you're going to see a ton of names in front of you. What it's doing is it's building up momentum to show us people that live their life by faith so that when we get to the beginning of chapter 12, they can be called our cloud of witnesses. They're the people that have surrounded us in our faith as we run this race, that we can be motivated by what they have done so that we can stay faithful to Christ. The whole book of Hebrews is trying to get us to persevere, and this is one of the chapters that pushes that point the hardest. So keep that in mind as we go forward. This morning, we're gonna be looking at the very first name on this list, verse four. It's gonna be Abel. This is cool because as far as the Bible is concerned, Abel is the first person to come to God by faith. We had Adam and Eve who were in the garden of Eden with God, and they were with God by sight. 
And as they fell into sin, they were expelled from the garden, and they had Cain and Abel. And because Cain and Abel could not come to God with sight, they didn't walk in the garden with him, Abel came to God by faith. He was sure, even though he did not see. So that's where we're at today, chapter 11, verse 4. Holly graciously read uh, the story of Cain and Abel for us, so we're kind of all on the same page now. And we're going to look at what Abel's life offers us for what it looks like to live a life of faith. So it's one verse. Let's take a look at it. It says this. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word, namely the word incarnate Jesus Christ. And God, as we look at your word today, we pray that you would reveal to us what it is you'd like us to see about your son, that we may see that he is worthy, that we would come to a deeper and more profound faith in who he is and what he's done through history. Lord, we are utterly dependent on you, and we can do no good thing apart from your acting through us. So Lord, we pray that you would speak today, that you would convict us in our hearts, and that we would be moved to worship you in a deeper way, in love and gratitude. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, one verse. We got tons to consider. So the first part says again, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. And so if you're paying attention, the question that seems to be staring us in the face, it says, Abel offered a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain by faith. The question that comes up is, how did he do that? What did that look like? And if you're thinking about this, or now you're, you're pondering, that's a great question to ask, if only the Bible answered it. Many theologians and Bible scholars have considered this, but the, the reality is, is there's a variety of opinions, and there's no clear-cut answer to this. And while it may come as a shock to us, the biblical authors didn't seem all that concerned with answering that question for us. Brothers and sisters, I think this should serve as a lesson to us that the Bible isn't out to appease all of the qualms or questions that we have to give to it. We have to ask ourselves whether we are judging God's word or allowing it to judge us. And this is not to say that the Bible doesn't answer our questions. It is sufficient for everything that we need in life and faith. But we need to understand that in this case, the biblical authors didn't seem to feel that it was necessary that we had the answer to that question. But one thing that we can be confident of, we can be confident that when Cain and Abel came to offer their sacrifice to God, it wasn't some frivolous thing. You know, Abel wasn't going up there and murdering his goat to a God that he thought might or might not exist. We can be sure that Cain and Abel had clear instructions that God had revealed to them how it was that they were supposed to do sacrifices because it's clear that only one of them did it right and that was Abel because God looked upon his sacrifice favorably. It's here that we see the first characteristic from Abel's life of living the life of faith. Living a life of faith in God requires coming to God on his own terms. I'm gonna repeat that again. Living a life of faith in God requires coming to God on his terms. Are we really willing to do that? If you're anything like me, you'd prefer only to come to God when it suits you, when it makes you comfortable. 
I would rather come to God on my own terms of the agreement rather than his. And for some of us, we may be highly calculated people. We like to have our ducks in a row before we make our decisions. And for you to follow God in faith might look like stepping into territory that you would prefer not to go. That could be uh, building a relationship with someone you don't really like. That could be letting go of something that you've held on to for years. Or maybe more personally, that could look like reconciling a broken relationship with a family member. If you're more like me and you're a little bit more impulsive, uh, following God in faith might mean trusting him right where you're at, staying exactly where you're at. So could it be that following God in faith for you, the impulsive decision maker, could it be that following God in faith looks like staying completely still until he moves you out of the way? Brothers and sisters, Abel's sacrifice to God in faith looked like him adopting God's agenda, not him forcing God to adopt his. Even if we can't see the future, if we have faith in God, do we really believe that he knows the future? Do we really believe that he goes before us? Because if we really trusted that, if we really believed this, then we could trust in God. We would not have to see the immediate benefit or result of what he was calling us to. We could just know that he is God, that he is good, and that he goes before us, and we could trust in his leadership alone, looking to him and not the circumstance. So point one, living a life of faith in God requires coming to God on his own terms. If we're gonna use another analogy, when we entered into the covenant with God, the new covenant through Christ, we have to remember that even though we entered into a partnership and we signed the agreement with God by saying, yes, I will follow you, I will follow your son, we have to remember that God signed the agreement with his blood. And so it's his terms that we have to come under submission to. And it's his authority that we have to answer to. The next characteristic of a faith walk that we see from Abel is one's faith in God should result in a desire to act. The text says it like this, uh, we'll read the whole part of the first section. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, next part, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. So faith in God should result in a desire to act. This is faith and action combined, and I know it might sound simple, but I honestly think we overlook this in our day-to-day life way too easily that if we have faith in Christ, then we will genuinely seek to follow him. I have heard this idea that we might have a private faith, that our faith life is private to ourself, when what we actually mean is I'm just not bold enough to talk about Jesus to people. Or if I'm an introvert and I, I don't seek out social attention, I don't take the opportunities I have to talk about Jesus with my coworkers, with my friends, when the situation arises. That is not a private faith, that is disobedience to the Great Commission. Nobody has a private faith. When we have faith, it plays itself out in action, which is a very public thing. We may not talk about it, but we'll surely act on what we believe in one way or another. As we look at our text this morning, it becomes very, very clear that the Bible assumes something that we often don't assume. It's that if we have faith, then we're going to do something about it or have at least the desire to do something about it. Let's just consider what the scriptures say. Consider Jesus talking about we'll know each other by the fruits we bear. If our faith is merely a private thing, then we would have no idea who our brothers and sisters in Christ were. 
Consider James as he talks about the idea that faith without works is dead. He assumes that if you're not demonstrating, if you're not demonstrating fruits, if you're not demonstrating good works by Christ, then you may not have faith in Christ at all. Or think about the verse we often go back to for our understanding that we're saved by faith alone, by God's grace. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, by grace you have been saved through faith, and it's not your own doing, it is a gift of God that no one may boast. And I wholeheartedly affirm that it is only by our faith in Christ that we are saved, but do we forget the verse that comes right after that? For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Paul is assuming that we are saved by our faith, but that will always result in us acting that out in one way or another. No matter what we have faith in, and we all have faith in something, we are going to act on it as a result. That's why it's so important that we consider and we keep watch over what we have faith in. Because if we believe in the wrong thing, if we are trusting in the wrong thing, then it will most likely result in wrong action in one way or another. So through faith, we read here, through faith, Abel was commended as righteous. But what exactly does that look like? How exactly does that work? I think a good analogy to this, we have a lot of younger families and and young people that are going to be getting married and having families in our church community here. A good analogy is to think about a pregnant mother, actually, in this. A pregnant mother, they have the newborn, or, well, not yet newborn, infant inside them, and they are connected to their mother via an umbilical cord. And through that cord, waste is taken away from them to keep them healthy, and all of the nutrients that they need is given through that cord in order to keep the baby alive. It is the baby's lifeline until they are born. Similarly, our faith is like our lifeline to God. And through our faith comes God's righteousness. And through our faith in Christ, our sin, our waste is taken away from us. And as a result of that, we are given the energy, we are given the inspiration, we are given the passion to serve God faithfully, to act out our faith like we see with Abel, like Holly read with Genesis 4. Church, our faith and our actions, they go hand in hand. So does your faith in Christ result in a desire to act? Because if it doesn't result in a passion to serve God, to follow him, to do something about what he has done for us, then I think we honestly need to ask ourselves whether our faith is elsewhere. Just consider the fruits that you have in your life. Do you find that you have constant joy? Or do you go with peaks and valleys of happiness and depression? Do you find that you are seeing yourself growing in maturity in Christ, that you are overcoming sin in your life, or are you struggling with the same old crap every single day? Do you find that you have an eternal perspective when it comes to your day and your weeks? Or are you just trying to make it through the day to get to the weekend, to live for the weekend? If we are plagued by the negative connotations I mentioned, then it might be worth considering whether we're trusting something other than God, another object, another person. And in reality, this is not a one-and-done situation. We don't just put our faith in Christ and that's it and everything is dandelions. 
John Calvin, the church reformer, said it like this, man's nature is a perpetual factory of idols, meaning that we're gonna continually, in our brokenness, even though God is making us new, in our brokenness, we're gonna constantly see things and we're going to try and make them into gods. So what golden calves do you possibly have that you're making into a god? Believer, are you keeping watch over the lifeline that God has given you, that faith through which we receive righteousness and our sin is taken away? Are you keeping watch over your faith and making sure that it is consistently tied to your creator? An unbeliever, what is your faith in? Is it in yourself? Is it in your money? Is it in relationships? Is it in sex? And what is the evidence that that what you have, what your faith is in, is more trustworthy than Christ. Let's look at the last sentence in our text for today. And through his faith, that is Abel's, though he died, he still speaks. Our final characteristic of faith that we're going to look at is because faith results in a desire to act and our actions impact the world around us, then what our faith is in will either leave a positive or a negative legacy for those in our lives. What our faith is in will either leave a positive or a negative legacy for those in our lives. And before I talk about more of what I mean by that, I'm gonna talk about what I absolutely don't mean. What I don't mean is leaving a legacy that after you are gone or out of your, after you're out of people's lives, that they say, man, they were a really good person. They were really cool. They, they, they had a profound impact on me. That's not the legacy I'm talking about. The reality is, is all of us in this room, within the next hundred years, we will either have lost touch with one another or we'll be in the ground dead. And while we'll certainly have good things that people remember about us, good things that we did, it's sure to come out ways that we fell short or ways that we didn't do relationship well or hopefully not, but significant ways that we sinned against one another. And at that point, our legacy, if it's based upon our good works, is tainted. It is screwed up at that point. But friends, I'm talking about a legacy that says, despite the fact, despite the fact that I screwed up, I believed in a God who didn't screw up. Despite the fact that my life was just so temporary in this place, the eternal God used me well for his glory. As Holly and I like to say to one another, you're just his tool. He will use us. This is quite recent, but many of us know Dr. Nick Manolis, who passed away, went on to glory with the Lord this past Monday. And for those of us that knew him, Dr. Nick was one of those people, maybe if you don't know him, you know someone like this, that when you talk to him, you could see the Holy Spirit moving through him. You could see the joy of Christ coming through him in his relationships, in the hope that he had. He had a hope that could not be shaken by this world. I had the privilege of getting to know Dr. Nick briefly over the past couple years, and at one point, I came in on one morning, and he hands me a couple pieces of paper. And on those pieces of paper is what he called his moral will. And this wasn't a will like we often think of when somebody passes away and the tangible things that they have, it is what they want to pass on to those that they love, their family and their friends. 
This moral will was a list, a, him talking about the ethics and the character and the morals that he wanted his kids and his family to demonstrate after he was gone. So he gave me this, and I was blessed to have this, and I think this serves as a good example from a faithful saint that has been among us, someone who is beloved, that he was unwilling to die without being sure that his family was left with the legacy of his faith in Christ. Friends, that's exactly what we see in Abel, despite Abel being murdered by his brother Cain. Despite the fact that we just looked at Genesis, and nowhere in Scripture do we even have one quote of Abel, we only see the actions of his faith. He still serves as an example to us. And the authors of Genesis used Abel's story in order to push along the narrative, the story and history of God's people culminating in Christ. So a couple questions to consider. Younger folks, you probably live a little more of a a transient life with your jobs and your relationships. People are coming and going out of your life. You're going into and coming out of different seasons. Are you leveraging those seasons in order to ensure that after you're gone, a legacy for Christ is left behind? That could come through one relationship, one act of boldness. Middle-aged and older folks, maybe some of you are empty nesters, your life has probably slowed down a significant amount since you were young bucks. Are you still valuing the truth, though, that even in this season of life, your faith in Christ can still have a huge impact on your family and friends? Will our family and friends see our lives and see individuals consumed with the glory and love of Christ? Or will they just see religious indifference? Because only one of those things has a significant impact on our world, a beneficial impact on our world that goes into eternity. As we close our gathered worship this morning, I just want to encourage you to consider the three things that we talked about today. I'll, I'll remind you of them quickly. Consider whether you're meeting God on his terms or on your own terms. Are you going about your day saying, God, I will follow you if it fits within my box of understanding? Or are you willing to step into, uh, step over the line into territory that you would prefer not to go because he has called you to follow in obedience and faith? Consider whether you're demonstrating a biblical faith that's grounded in God and is acted out. Are there relationships that you need to mend? Are there people that you need to speak Jesus into their life? Are you looking for on-ramps in your workplace to share the gospel, to show them the redemption and the benefit of living the abundant life that Jesus called us to? And finally, I want to encourage you to consider what legacy your faith in Christ will have. Will people look at your lives? Will they look at our lives and want to model their walk with Jesus after it? Or will unbelievers look at your life and want to know Jesus at all? We're going to transition now and we're going to take the Lord's Supper. And this is our way that we come together as a faith community. We talked about faith and action coming together. This is an act that we do to remember how Jesus first acted for us. If you're not a follower of Jesus, then I just ask that you abstain, but I want to remind you of something that I said earlier. You certainly have faith 
in something. You are trusting in something as your higher authority, even if it's yourself. So the question that stands is what are you trusting and what is the evidence that it is more trustworthy than the Lord Jesus? He is God incarnate who has came and he's lived the perfect life and he has died for sins and he has risen again, securing a way to a relationship with God. This is not a myth. This is not a fairy tale. This is history and the consequences are dire and the rewards are great. Taking communion this morning could be your first act that springs out of putting your faith in Jesus. If you want to talk about that, I'll be up front after the service, and it would just be my privilege to answer any questions or chat with you or get to know you better. Brothers and sisters, as you take communion, I just want to remind you of one thing, that although Abel's blood spoke about vengeance and justice for God's people, It was only Jesus' blood that spoke about our acquittal of our guilt, of God's mercy on us, and the redemption that is offered only in his son. Let's pray. Lord, we confess that we have a shakable faith, that sometimes that we make idols and we build our house upon the sand instead of upon the rock that is your son. Lord, we we ask that you would help our unbelief in these times, that we would constantly turn back to you knowing that we cannot do anything apart from you working. Spirit, we pray that you would sanctify us. We pray that you would help us to see our constant need and dependence on Jesus, that you would move through us to our communities, to our families and friends, that we would not think that our faith is private, but that it is always public, and that how we believe on you impacts the way that we will act and serve those around us. So Lord, we confess that we have fallen short of this, and we ask your forgiveness, and we look to Jesus now, the one who shed his blood for us, We look to him and we pray that we would seek to emulate our lives, not only following Abel, but ultimately in following your son. Lord, we we trust in you. We believe, help our unbelief in this time. We thank you for your sacrifice for us, for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen.